Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here. We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 14, uh, verse 22, and we will get started. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that um, Com. Zibarega, always struggle there, um, was here and he shared his life experience uh, through the lens of the first half of Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus is displaced through the presence of evil and the execution of John the Baptist, and yet God meets him in that place of loneliness and mourning. And uses him to bless the crowds who have gathered in this place. Many are healed and thousands are miraculously fed. And all of these events are unfolding as people are struggling to figure out just who Jesus is and what he's up to. The Jewish people had been waiting for a Messiah or anointed one. For centuries. And the Messiah, in their minds, was to be a victorious military and political leader, a true king who would defeat the oppressive pagan powers that were ruling over them and usher in a literal, physical kingdom of God on earth. They'd been waiting centuries for this Messiah. And many were convinced that Jesus was that man. All of the miraculous signs and healings confirmed in their mind that yes, in fact, God is with him. And in fact, right after the feeding of the 5,000, which is where we ended last week, John's gospel tells us, uh, tells us this. It says, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world, or the one that we have been waiting for. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Why would he withdraw? Well, it turns out that the crowds were enthusiastic but they were enthusiastic for a Jesus who didn't exist. And without knowing it, they were trying to force him to become a different kind of Messiah than the one that they truly needed. And so, while the crowds are sent home, the disciples, as they follow Jesus in humility and with faith, are going to become privileged to the true identity of Jesus. We pick up in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Immediately, 
Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind uh, was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let uh, the sick just touch the edge edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the scriptures. Uh, Thank you for this uh, beautiful glimpse that we get of you uh, and your life and your ministry. And as we gather together uh, as a small crowd on a Sunday morning, I can't help but seeing these crowds that gathered around you and the healing that they experienced and the provision that they experienced. And I pray that that would be our experience this morning, that as we gather around you, the living God, that you would speak, that you would guide, that you uh, would satisfy the deep needs that we've carried into this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus of Nazareth heals the masses and sends them home cured. He feeds the masses and sends them home satisfied. Surely, this is the one that they've waited for. Surely, this is the Messiah. But then the disciples get something beyond what they bargained for, more than they had anticipated. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. The sun sets, and the disciples board a ship to cross the Sea of Galilee, in the dark, as Jesus had directed them. Expert fishermen, uh, many of these men have crossed this lake many times. And though it's called a sea, commonly, a lake is probably the better term. At its widest, it's eight miles across. And um, if you didn't know already, the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by sort of hills and small mountains uh, ranging up to about 1,300 feet. And so what happens is that the area above the lake becomes warm during the day and kind of forms this warm air pocket. But then when nighttime hits, it's not uncommon for that air pocket to then kind of move upward 
And as it does, it sucks down cold air from the surrounding hillsides that comes rushing down the hills onto the lake. And so what can happen there very easily is that you get, without warning, these sort of ferocious winds that all of a sudden just hit the lake. And the lake can go from totally calm to waves as high as six feet in a matter of of almost moments. And so as you're reading through the Gospels, uh, if you've ever been reading and wondered, hey, why are these guys always getting stuck in storms? Like, what's their deal? Well, the geography of the Sea of Galilee is their deal. And that's why they keep having this experience. These storms were very difficult to predict. And so the disciples are caught in this storm. Large waves are whipped up on the lake. It's the middle of the night. And it may sound dramatic to say that, oh, they were fighting for their lives on the lake. Uh, But we can say with certainty that they're anxious and that they're fighting to get out of this storm and through to the other side. To make matters worse, the dark and chaotic waters loomed large in the Hebrew mind. They were symbolic of chaos, of the chaos which threatened to uh, threaten God's ordered beauty in the world. They were symbolic, in a sense, of evil. For example, If you go all the way back to the beginning, to the opening pages of Scripture, the Bible starts with these verses. This is page 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, or chaotic and useless in the Hebrew. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And these verses would have been rich with meaning and symbolism in the ancient Near Eastern mind. The the dark and chaotic waters became a symbol for this sort of anti-God chaos into which God was advancing order and beauty and shalom. And so that's what Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are going to be about. Over the chaos and dark and threatening waters, the Spirit of God is hovering, ready to bring forth order and beauty and new life. And this image of the hostile waters is actually carried all the way through Scripture. For example, Psalm 89 says, You, God, in the beginning, I haven't memorized it, um, You, God, rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. And God asked Jeremiah, Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. And so you get this imagery all the way through the scriptures. But all of it was symbolic of God holding the dark chaos at bay. Even those elemental forces in the world had to obey him. 
And those dark and threatening forces would ultimately, will ultimately, be destroyed. Which is why, when you get to the very end of the scriptures, in the book of Revelation, John has this vision. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the end goal of scripture. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And through our modern Western lens, we read this and say, well, that's rude. I mean, eternity with God and no beach days? Like, why would you... But in the Hebrew mind, what they're reading is no more dark powers, no more chaos... No more evil. All of it is done away with. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he stops the storm and the raging waters with a word, the disciples are terrified. Who who is this? We knew that, that the Messiah would be anointed by God, but he's not supposed to be God. Or, or is he? The disciples are stunned, but Jesus' actions are loaded with meaning. In this particular instance that we're reading about this morning, the disciples are again stuck in a raging storm on the lake. The dark and chaotic waters are threatening to consume them. And we're told that shortly before dawn, while it was still dark, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. In other words, this is impossible, what is happening before our eyes. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Rebuking the storm is one thing. But walking out on the water, in the midst of it, this is impossible. Who is this shadowy figure out on the waves? How could what we're seeing possibly be real? The event itself is unprecedented, but the message is clear. Jesus is no ordinary man. He is more than a political leader. He is more than a conquering king. There is something else happening here. Once again, God is there over the dark and chaotic waters getting ready to begin something new. And in the aftermath, we're told that the wind died down And that those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The crowds misunderstood him. The religious elite are miles from understanding. But these men 
can feel the blood pumping faster through their veins. And in this moment, they know who he is. It has been made stunningly clear. And there are several elements of the story we read this morning which I find particularly striking. And the first is that Jesus comes to them at night in the middle of the lake while they're alone in the pre-dawn darkness. And this is where his true nature is revealed. And the passage we read this morning is not an isolated example. Jesus seems to routinely reveal the deepest part of his nature to a small, intimate group of faithful friends. And, And so his true nature is revealed around a campfire at Caesarea Philippi and on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. It is seen most clearly behind closed doors with a a faithful few. And that seems odd. You see, if I were Jesus, I would have done this earlier in the day. I would have waited until the 5,000 were fed. And as the last person was fed and the disciples were gathering up the 12th basket of leftovers and, and the crowd was chanting my name, I would have taken a bow, peace guys, I'm out. And I would have just pranced across the Sea of Galilee, just right then and there. <laughs> Thousands of people watching. And as they're chanting, my, my true nature is finally revealed and the religious leaders are put to shame. And, and this is how I picture it. That's what I would have done. And I'm joking, but only halfway. Why quench the momentum of the crowds just to send them home confused? Why reveal yourself at 5 a.m. on the lake? And in part, the answer is faith. Those who put their genuine faith and trust in Jesus were rewarded by seeing more and more of his true nature. And this was by design. Think, for example, of the way that Jesus spoke in parables. His parables were a brilliant, meaningful, compact stories which contained layers of beauty and theological truth. They were easily passed on and they packed a punch, at least to those who had ears to hear. And so at one point, Jesus begins speaking increasingly in parables to all of the crowds. And afterwards, the disciples pull Jesus aside and say, Jesus, why are you always speaking in parables? And this was his response. He says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables 
so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. In other words, I'm laying the truth out there for everyone to see, but only those who have the right heart posture of humility and faith will actually have eyes to see it. It's brilliant. It's like handing out little boxes of treasure that only faith can unlock. The truth is hidden in plain sight. In fact, at one point, Jesus breaks into prayer and he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. The truth is here, but it will take a simple and childlike faith to unlock its mysteries. And this is the type of faith that the disciples possess. They are as imperfect as you or me, and oftentimes they are just as confused as we are. And yet, they come to Jesus in humility, and in a sense, they're attempting to say, Jesus, we want you to reveal your true nature to us on your own terms. It's this simple, open, humble faith. And this, then, is contrasted with the crowds around them. And and the crowds, on the other hand, are are going to predetermine in their mind who Jesus is, what he's about, and what he should do for them. And hence, they will be the recipients of, of blessing and of grace and of provision and even of physical healing, but not knowledge. They do not understand Jesus' true nature, and Jesus is not going to tell them. And so there's a sense in which we are to come, like, come to Jesus like the disciples do. Saying, Jesus, we just want to follow you as we do. Would you reveal your true nature to us? The alternative is to go the way of the crowds and to generate a false Jesus in our minds who is set up to serve our ends and our means. And so there is always a risk that we will come to Jesus and attempt to make him the Messiah that we think we need. There are plenty of scholars who have butchered the Jesus of the Gospels and reduced him down to a radical political revolutionary or a sage with tons of great wisdom and nothing more. What evidence do they have for these conclusions? Well, they say, I just find the other stuff in the Gospels so hard to believe that it must not be true. So I'm going to go through the Gospels and I'm going to erase everything that doesn't make sense to me or that I deem impossible and whatever's left, well, that must be the true Jesus. 
that must be the historical Jesus who actually existed. What is that? That that is the height of pride and folly. That we would dictate to Jesus who he is. That we would set up a false image of him that's sort of in his likeness, but also sort of in our own likeness. And follow that. And so people can have great enthusiasm for Jesus, but the enthusiasm that they have is not always for the real biblical Jesus. It may be Jesus the great moral example, or a socialist Jesus, or a capitalist Jesus, or an anti-Semitic Jesus, or a white and racist Jesus or a revolutionary anarchist Jesus, or a cool countercultural Jesus who wears flip-flops and loves to surf. But not always the whole Jesus who in the end gives his life as a ransom for sinners. When we insist on setting up a false Jesus who serves our ends and our means and is essentially a reflection of our image, then unfortunately, the real Jesus tends to do what we just read about in this story. In a sense, he says, all right, guys, I'll send you home to think about what you're saying right now. I'll be out there on the mountain. And and when you want the real me, you can come to me on my terms. And as Jesus departs, what we're left with if we set up a false image is is now something that's even more empty because the real Jesus refuses to play along with it. And this is then set up in opposition to or in contrast to the disciples. The disciples are friends of Jesus who are just along for the ride. And they are the ones who are made privileged to who he is in this shocking, mysterious, impossible way that, just stand, that causes us to just stand in awe. And, and we need that in our modern age of skepticism. We, we need moments where we just stand in awe of God and who he is, and the fact that he, he simply won't fit into the, the boxes that we create. He simply won't stay within the lines that we draw, and he is so much better than we desire him to be. So that's the first takeaway. If you're taking notes, first off, when we approach Jesus in faith, He reveals his true nature to us. And it is so much better than the version that we invent for ourselves in our own minds. And second, if you're taking notes, Jesus calls calls us rather to join him by faith in the impossible. The most startling thing about the passage we read this morning is that Jesus is walking on water. And the second most striking feature is Peter's response to Jesus walking on water. 
The disciples are standing there, stunned, terrified, and in awe. What is unfolding around them is this otherworldly scene that just feels impossible. And yet, it's happening. And if I'm on the boat, I'm dumbfounded. And I'm rapidly trying to, to wrap my mind around what I'm seeing. And all of my boxes for God as the creator of the universe and Jesus as the very human Messiah are, are becoming blurred. They're, they're being blown up by what I'm witnessing in front of me. And so if I'm on the boat, I, I'm speechless, I'm stunned, I'm, I'm quickly trying to adjust my view of reality to fit what it is that I see in front of my face. But Peter, for all his flaws, is absolutely brilliant. Jesus is there in the dark, on the waves, and, and, and he says, hey, it's me, don't be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Have you ever thought about the audacity of that statement? I mean, Peter's first thought is likely one that's shared with everyone else on the boat. This Jesus who we've been following, he's God. But his second thought appears to be one that's independent of everyone else on the boat. And he says, Jesus, empower me to do what you are doing. Let me join you in that impossible place. And I'm telling you that the faith that Peter is exercising in this moment is off the charts. Jesus, I don't just have faith that that's you and that you can do this. I have faith that you can empower me to do it with you. I mean, why would he ever think that to begin with? Where did that idea even come from? It's crazy. But what does Jesus say? Come. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. The concept of faith is not an easy one to define. There is a sense in which faith is a belief, is belief in God and what He's revealed to us. Faith in the common way we use it is, is agreeing with God. It's actively trusting in who God is and what He's revealed. But there's also these other elements or aspects of faith. And one is that we approach God with expectancy thinking high thoughts about what he's capable of in the here and now. And thirdly, there was buried within the Jewish concept of faith, this, uh, this concept of chutzpah. Can you say chutzpah? Yes. Chutzpah was a headstrong persistence, a brazen impotence unyielding tenacity, bold determinism, or what we would call in the modern day, raw nerve. And, and that plays into th this next layer of faith, 
which, which is this. This is the way that one theologian says it. He says, true faith is committing all that one knows about themselves to all that one knows about God. Which element of faith do you think Peter was exercising when he stepped off of that boat? I'm actually going to argue all four. That by doing what he's doing, in a sense he's saying, God, I believe you. I'm placing my active trust in you. And I'm approaching you with expectancy. And I'm doing it with this sense of raw nerve or sort of brazen, shameless persistence. Throwing all that he knows about himself into all that he knows about Jesus. It's tenacious and risky and beautiful. And people often cite this story as a picture of Jesus, or, or sorry, of Peter's wavering faith. And, and because remember that Peter eventually moves his eyes from Jesus to the storm and he begins to sink. And so as it plays out, Jesus eventually has to save him and, and put him back in the boat and, and all of this stuff. And he says in the process, hey, why did you doubt? But too often, we picture Jesus frowning when he says this. Oh, Peter, get back in the boat. Like, you're not ready, man. Come on. Like, you, you just don't have what it takes. No. Peter is demonstrating incredible faith in this moment. And James and John and the others are sitting there saying, No, that's not possible. Not Peter. And, and Peter becomes the second person in history to walk on water. And I think that Jesus' heart just swells at the sight of it. That, that Peter would have that faith and trust in him. I don't think he could have been any more proud of Peter in that moment. And when Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I can't help but hear a smile in his voice, in this almost comedic sense of irony, as him and Peter lock eyes and they're beaming over what they've just experienced. I think that was Jesus' way of saying, well done, Peter. But guess what? There's more. There's more available to you. You have not yet maxed out your faith. And the more you grow in faith, the more impossible things we are going to do together. And I was meditating on uh, Peter's response in this sort of instant gut reaction request to join Jesus on the waves. And I was just questioning, where did that come from? What made Peter think that it was even within the realm of possibility that he would join Jesus in something that was so audacious and so impossible? And then I realized that Peter was just doing what he'd been trained to do. That from the moment he and the others left their boats and their families and their old lives behind, Jesus had been doing things 
which the modern secular mind declares impossible. Healing the sick, cleansing the leper, raising the dead, calling people to faith and full participation in God's inbreaking kingdom. There was all of this stuff that Jesus was doing. And we're really quick to say, well, that proves that Jesus was divine. But then... Jesus was constantly turning around and empowering his disciples to do the exact same things. We're told that Jesus sent out the twelve with these words, that he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And he said to them, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. This isn't Jesus that we're talking about. This is ordinary men and women who he is empowering through his power and through their faith. And Peter has been experiencing all of this stuff. He's in the thick of it. And he has this mindset that Jesus does incredible things and he empowers me to do those incredible things along with him. It's been happening from start to finish. And so his mindset is, oh, Jesus is cleansing lepers. That means I can join Jesus in cleansing lepers. Oh, he's casting out demons. I can join him in casting out demons. Oh, he's proclaiming this message about the kingdom. I can proclaim this message about the kingdom that changes human lives from top to bottom. I can join him in raising the dead. Oh, look, there's Jesus walking on water. Wait. Do you think that maybe I could join him in that? Whoa. To place your faith in Jesus is to start this journey of joining him in the impossible. And the call to discipleship hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Jesus is still doing the same impossible stuff and he's still calling us to join him in that place by faith. One of our partners on the grounds in Haiti is a man named Bishop June. And Bishop June died at the age of two. And his father was a man of faith who was traveling around Haiti at the time. And little June was at home with mom. And he got sick and his condition worsened until finally at the age of two, he passed away. Devastating. But his dad was a man of faith. And he believed that God had already spoken to him about his son's future. And he knew that God could do the miraculous. And he knew that he needed to pray. And so he started traveling back home. And in the meantime, his two-year-old son was pronounced dead. And because they don't have funeral homes in Haiti and it's a warm, tropical climate, 
the, the body began to decompose in the heat. And they couldn't wait any longer for dad to get back. They had to bury the body. So they laid the body in a coffin and they sent message to his dad that he better make it home quickly because they were going to have a ceremony and, and bury the body. And so dad is, is praying all the way back and he gets there um, right as they're having the ceremony. And, and he feels the prompting of the Spirit and right in the middle of the ceremony, he says, no, stop what you're doing. Everybody stop. We, we have to pray over this child. And, and I think God wants to do something here. So in the middle of the ceremony with, with all the people there, they halt everything and begin to pray over, their, over his son's dead body for an hour and a half passionately that, that's chutzpah. My average prayer is somewhere between 15 and 20 seconds. For an hour and a half, in the middle of the ceremony, they pray passionately over the coffin until at the end of an hour and a half, they hear sneezing coming from inside the coffin. And they go and break the coffin open, and there's little June fully restored, awake, alive, just hanging out. And, and so they, they pull him out of the coffin and he went on to serve God in the form of pastoral ministry and he's been doing it his whole life. He's now in his 50s and he's still alive and still serving. That is impossible and yet it's the type of stuff that Jesus is doing. And, and if we're anything like Peter, we're going to find that impulse within our own hearts that says, Jesus, I want to join you in that impossible place. And I don't know what it is that God is calling you to specifically, but I know it will take faith to join him in that place. It is by faith that Jesus reveals his true nature to us. And it is by faith that we follow him into the impossible. For many of you, that will play out in your workplaces and in your careers day by day. For some of you, that will involve uh, your, your choice of future schools or your choice of roommates. For others, it will involve the foreign mission field. For almost all of us in the room, it will involve praying for bigger things than you've allowed yourself to pray for up to this point. Perhaps Jesus wants you to join him in bringing physical healing or acts of justice and restoration into the world. Perhaps he wants you to join him in extending forgiveness and the gospel of grace to people who you don't think are ready to receive it. Perhaps he wants you to step off the boat, so to speak, and to trust him with your finances, to really radically trust him with your marriage, with your dating relationship, with your job, with your children. 
God has prepared a ministry for each one of us or an area of influence within our lives for the sake of his kingdom. What does it look like for you to fully engage in what he's given you in the power of his spirit and to redefine what is possible in the process? And some of you are thinking, sure, I'll pray for the dead to be raised. If I see Jesus walking on water, I will attempt to walk on water. But I am not sharing the gospel with grandma. <laughs> like, forget, like, no way am I doing that. She is too far gone. Like, there is no way God is going to change her heart. There, there, there's no way that I can reconcile this marriage. There is no way that I can forgive her for what she's done. There's no way that I can partner with God in physical healing. There is no way that I can receive prophetic and encouraging words and pass them on to real people in real time. There's no way that those things can happen. All of us are caught in the crossfire between faith and fear. All of us. And I don't know what Peter felt as he walked across the waves, but I know what he saw. First, he saw Jesus, and everything was going really well. And then he saw the winds and the waves and, and his modern secular mind kicked in and said, this is not possible. What is happening to me right now is not reality. It can't be. This can't work. And all of a sudden fear comes in and, and it and eclipses faith and he begins to sink. And he cries out and, and Jesus comes to rescue him. He too is caught in that tension, in that crossfire between faith and fear. And yet Jesus is there to remind him, there's more. You have not yet maxed out your faith. There is more that I want to lead you into. And the more faith you find rising up in yourself, the further you will be able to walk. God hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years. And neither has his call. He is still doing impossible things. We'll end with this. Two years ago, I was on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and I walked on water. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry, that's not in my notes. I just, I couldn't help it. I was on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and I was zoning out as I often do. And I'm staring out into the water, which is incredibly calm, and, and I'm pondering this story that we read this morning. Whoa, Jesus walked on this water. Like, it, it happened right here on this lake. And as I was pondering that and thinking about it, I had this moment where I just sensed that God was right there. The Spirit of God was, was there, and, and your hair kind of stands on end, and you're, whoa, he's with me right now. 
And I heard him say a single phrase in that moment. I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm not done doing the things that you say are impossible. I'm not done empowering ordinary people to do extraordinary things for the sake of my kingdom. I'm not done moving in power. I'm not done doing the unexpected. I'm not done breaking into this reality for the glory of my name. I'm not done. Would you join me? And I can't help but wonder if that's what he wants to whisper to some of you this morning. I'm not done. Would you join me? Let's pray. Mm-hmm.